Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. If you do have the YouVersion Bible app, I know I say this every week, but you can follow along under the events. And there's a lot of notes in there um, that you can follow along with as well. And we're in a series called Milk and Honey, and we're talking about the substance and the sweetness of the story of the Bible. And we're trying to move through thematically the big topics of the Bible or sort of what moves the story along. Um, Because there are a lot of uh, famous Bible stories Um, There's a lot of uh, Bible sort of words or ideas that we um, uh, say or maybe understand or maybe don't fully understand. And so in this series, we're trying to get to like, okay, what is the big theme? Because the Bible is made up of 66 books. So it's not just a book, it's a library of books. Um, But it has one common idea, one common theme. And so we've been looking at this. And the way we've been summarizing it is the story goes like this. Creation and commission, rebellion and redemption, creation and then commission again. So this is sort of the thread line that we're following through the Bible. And right now we're in the part of redemption. Chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, introduces us to creation, the commission, and the rebellion. But then in chapter 3 of Genesis, we also get a glimpse of God's plan for redemption. And from that point on, we're following God's plan for redemption. And the way he does that, and we've been following this story along. So last time we were together, we talked about, um, this was two weeks ago, we were introduced to Moses in the Exodus. And we're going to follow his story a little um, more. If you remember, if not, I'll, I'll sort of remind us, um, Israel left from, uh, as, as the descendants of uh, Jacob, uh, his uh, well, first his 12 sons, and then ultimately they grew to about 70, uh, his family, Jacob's family, and they moved to Egypt because there was a famine in the land that they were from. They moved to Egypt, and God spared them, raising up one of their sons to be a leader in Egypt. But now 400 years has passed, and people have forgotten about Jacob. They've forgotten about Joseph. And the new Pharaoh is a wicked tyrant. And he enslaves the people of Israel that have grown from about uh, uh, 70 people um, to millions of people in this 400-year period of time. So Genesis chapter, I think it's 50, 51, something like that, ends, and then 400 years pass, and the people go from 70 to millions, and they're now enslaved uh, in the book of Exodus. And so the book of Exodus sort of opens on like a, a, an eerie note. You've got the promised uh, people of Israel enslaved to the, uh, to the Egyptians, But then God raises up a deliverer, Moses. And last time we saw God introduces himself to Moses as the deliverer, as the savior. And we saw that the way that God heals the world is by healing individuals. That God reveals himself to an individual, to one guy, chooses him to then be God's uh, sort of ambassador and the person to carry God's redemption to the people of um, Israel. So we have just, God met Moses. They had an interaction, and now we're going to look at that story of the Exodus. All right, so Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. God is speaking to Moses. It's still that burning bush encounter. Moses' shoes are off. The sheep are somewhere. 
He's sort of lost track of his sheep. Now he's talking to this bush or angel of the Lord in the midst of the bush and says this. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Pezites um, and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that uh, you shall not go empty handed. But every woman uh, shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her uh, who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." Chapter 4, okay, so that's God's promise. You're going to deliver the people out of Egypt. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to happen. Chapter 4, then Moses answered and said, "Uh, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. I, I picture that like a, like a cartoon. Like, ah! And him like jumping behind the bush and the snake being there. I don't know. That's just how I picture it. Maybe it's from the Prince of Egypt. I don't know. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Okay. Amen. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, go see Prince of Egypt. The, it's like a star-studded cast. I think like Beyonce's in it. Right? Is that correct? Beyonce? Um, it is. It's Beyonce. Facts, right? No. Is it Beyonce? Okay, I'm looking it up right now. Okay. Tell me. I don't know. I'm going to wait. IMDb. Hang on. Slash Prince of Egypt. (laughs) Who is it? Somebody like that is in there, though. Really? Wait, does she sing the song, though, maybe? Okay. Not Beyonce. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Okay, anyways, back to the Bible. God's in the Bible, not Beyonce. What'd you say? Okay, that counts for something. All right. Mariah Carey. Anyways. And he said, cast it on the ground. So cast it became a snake. And Moses fled from it. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. And then he says that they may believe that the Lord uh, God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay. We're going to pause there. We'll pick up on the story. But we're going to pause there in the text. Now, again. We're following the single thread through the Bible. And the way that God heals the world is by healing individuals. This is God's plan for redemption. And we've seen that God is an infinite God. 
right? He is the creator of everything and he's in control. We're introduced to that in Genesis chapter 1. But we've also seen him as the intimate God, meaning he is a God of personal encounter. Over and over, God reveals himself to individuals. So Abraham and his family, which led uh, to the children of Israel. And then last time we saw to Moses and God raises up a deliverer. I think one of the things we should note just about our life is that God is a God of personal encounter. That God, he wants to reveal himself to you personally. It's not just about uh, like God as a whole revealing himself through the Bible, but that God specifically wants to reveal his, his plans and his goodness to your life specifically. And I think a lot of times if you sort of ask anybody that's walked with God or maybe a defining moment for them when they chose to follow God, it was because he revealed himself to them in a personal way. That's my story. I remember being in a church service and God speaking to me. Not, or I mean, the most, uh, most sure I've ever been of God speaking to me. All of a sudden a voice in my head and oftentimes the way God speaks is through a question. He, he asked a question. Like, you, you can go through the Bible, even like Hagar, which is Abraham's uh, and Sarah's maidservant. He shows up to Hagar and he says, who are you? Or he says, where are you coming from and where are you going? He asks a question. And oftentimes when God speaks, he, he encounters people with a question. But whatever the case, God is a God of personal encounters. He's the infinite God. He's the intimate God. But we also see that he is an active God. He's the God of powerful deliverance. Not only of personal encounter, but he's a God of powerful deliverance. And today we see in the story that God is a God who delivers his people from oppression and from suffering. Now this is not only important uh, in the... an important story in the progression of the Bible. It's also an important story for us to understand the character and the heart of God. This story is one that God identifies with as a benchmark for who he is. This is the most referred to story in the Old Testament. I'm about to start talking to you guys in the back on the mic. I'm doing it now. Those that are not listening to my wife. Yeah, you three. Knock it off. Thank you. Dad mode. A pregnant wife. If my pregnant wife's talking to you, you listen. All right. Amen. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? All right. Thank you. This is the most referred to story in the Old Testament. The story of the Exodus. All right. Yahweh is known as the God who delivers his people out of the Egypt. Almost every time, listen to this, almost every time a new promise is given by God, this story is mentioned. Okay, so when God gives a new promise, I'm going to do this, he refers back to this story as sort of his, this is why you can trust me. The same God that delivered the people out of Egypt is going to do a new thing. He's going to make a way or he's going to provide in some other scene. Almost every time a new promise is given, this story is mentioned. This is who God is. This is why we can trust him and this is how he works. It's the exodus from Egypt and the resurrection of Christ from the dead that are the two largest single acts of God that the Bible refers to. Okay, it's the exodus from Egypt and it's the resurrection from Christ uh, from the dead that are the two largest single acts of God that the Bible refers to. So there's something very important about this story to understand about who God is and how he works in our lives. This is the story that God identifies with. He says, I am the God who brought the people out of Egypt. This is how he reveals himself. 
All right, so we're going to look at this story in three parts, and we'll move as quickly as I possibly can. Sound good? Bear with me, because I feel like we got a lot of really good stuff to cover. This is probably some of the deeper, like, stuff we'll get into just I know we talked about the Nephilim and all sorts of other stuff, but this will be some of the deeper stuff we get into, okay? Three parts, the convincing, the exit, and the heart, okay? We're going to look at it in three parts, the convincing, the exit, and the heart. Part one, let's talk about the convincing. All right, God sends Moses to be the deliverer. He's going to act on God's behalf to rescue the people of Israel. But before he goes to Egypt, God's got to convince Moses, Right? Moses initially asks two questions right when he encounters the burning bush. Who am I? Why are you choosing me? And who are you? What God is sending me? And then he brings up three excuses. So Moses is trying to get out of it. You ever been trying to get out of something? Right? You're like trying to think of a good excuse. You're like, oh, I can't make it. And they're like, actually, you can make it. And you're like, ah, um, ah. And you're like trying to get out. So he has two questions. Who am I? Who are you? And then three excuses. His three excuses are this. One, what if they don't believe me? Two, I'm not eloquent in speech. That's what he says. I'm not, a, I'm not a good communicator. I can't be the person. And then three, he just says, please send somebody else. So he's like, uh, what if they don't believe me? God gives him an answer. Then he says, uh, I'm just not a very good talker. There's probably somebody else. I don't talk good. I don't talk well. I'm not very good at this. Please send somebody else. And then he, just anybody will, anybody but me. Now to these excuses, God gives promises. Uh, the promise is I will use what you have and I will be with you. So to, to Moses' excuse, God responds and says, I'm going to use what you have and I'm going to be with you. Uh, God asks Moses when he says, I, uh, how are they going to believe me? I don't know if I can do it. God says, what's in your hand? And Moses says, he looks at his hand, he's like, it's a rod. Now it's a shepherd's rod. It would be used to herd the sheep, to protect the sheep, to, to sort of be a sign for the sheep. This is what a shepherd used. The reason he had it was because he was a shepherd. And this will now be referred to from this point on as the rod of God. It will be the only weapon, so to speak, that Moses uses to bring about deliverance. The preparation for Moses to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel was him going to be a shepherd, somebody that cares for sheep. It, the story of Exodus doesn't go from him leaving and fleeing uh, Egypt after murdering a guy to like a montage scene of him learning karate. Right, like I could imagine like if Hollywood was writing it, Moses like gets caught for killing an Egyptian. And so he goes and he's like, I've got to hone my skills. Like I've got to learn how to get away with it so I can then defeat the Egyptians. And like the music starts and he's like, like practicing all of his moves. And he's like, okay, I'm ready. No, he goes and he's a shepherd in the wilderness. And the way God hones Moses' skills is not by him learning how to do kung fu or defeat or, or fight or be this massive like hero deliverer. The way God hones his skills is by learning, teaching him how to care for some of the stupidest animals on the planet, sheep. And yet now in, in the wilderness as he's there and he's got his rod, God's preparing him to then be sent to be the leader of the nation of Israel, which we'll see maybe stupid's too strong of a word, but definitely selfish. 
definitely confused, and yet Moses will be able to care for them because he learned how to care for sheep. Right, so the rod that was in his hand became the rod of God because that's what he had and that's what God used to ultimately bring about deliverance. And so whenever God's stirring something in us, we have to ask a really simple question. What's in our hand? What do we have that God can use? How is the season or the situation or the circumstance we find ourselves in preparation for what God wants to do in and through our life? And this rod will be a sign, it will be a tool, it will also be used to part the waters and do many many other miracles. The second excuse that he, he makes is, I'm not eloquent in speech, I don't know what to say. Listen to how God responds, this is in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, who has made man's mouth? That's like a mic drop question. He says, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. What's his response? I can't go. I I don't have the right gifting. All I have is this stick. And God responds, who who made your mouth? Who's going to give you the words to say? The, The response to his fear is, I will be with you. Whenever God calls us to do something, he promises to be with us. And the final excuse is simply, God, would you just send somebody else? Just send somebody better, like, okay, I got the stick. You did the cool trick of turning into a snake. Awesome. Okay, I get it. You created everything. You you put together my mouth. You're going to give me the words. But at the end of the day, to be quite honest with you, God, I'd rather you just send somebody else. And God partially listens to Moses. He goes, okay, fine. You're still going to go, but I'm going to send your brother with you. I'm going to send Aaron with you. He's going to stand with you. And actually, he's going to communicate on your behalf, and he's going to go with you into this. And this is often how God will use us. He'll send good friends around us to go with us. I love this. Moses is like, I can't do it. And God's like, all right, if you have a buddy, you can do it. And not that you need a buddy to do it. God uses people alone all the time. But can I tell you, when you surround yourself with good, godly people, it is, it is, it is easier, and your capacity increases to walk and follow God. So maybe you need to surround yourself with the right people. Maybe as Moses asks this question, you can say, thank you. Appreciate that, Felix. God sends Moses' brother, and as a result, he's able to be used in the things in a greater capacity. So Moses has been convinced. All right, at the end of the day, he gives his three excuses. God gives him his three promises. He's like, all right, I'm going to do it. Now... Pharaoh's going to be needed, uh, needed to be convinced. Pharaoh is the leader of the strongest military nation in the world. He's considered a god and has obvious demonic and evil forces on his side. His power and strength has been built on the backs of the Israelites as his race-based slaves. And now Moses, an Israelite, has to go in and attempt to convince him to let his millions of slaves go free. This is the task. All right, that montage scene is over. He has learned karate, and now he has walked down, and he's, he's like seeing Egypt, right? And imagine the scene. Like, there's millions of Israelite slaves there. Pharaoh is the king. He's considered a god. And now Moses and his stick and his brother have to walk down there and think, okay, we're going to deliver all of these people from this, from this king in Egypt. Now, this will prove to be difficult, <laughs> 
Moses will first go and tell Pharaoh that Yahweh wants his people to let him go. He's like, hey, I'm here to tell you that Yahweh has sent me and you should let them go. And Pharaoh arrogantly responds. He says, who's Yahweh? I've never heard of him. In other words, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no, that, that name has no power or authority here. Yahweh, I've never heard of him. It's, it's, all, it's all about Pharaoh here. It's about Pharaoh in this house. I don't know who Yahweh is. And so God says, basically, I was going to say hold my beer, but that's not right. Um, <laughs> all right, bet. Does that work a little better? Um, <laughs> God, says, God says, I'm going to show you who I am. Right? I'm going to show that this name has power here. And so God sends 10 plagues to show Pharaoh who Yahweh is. Okay, the 10 plagues are this. They're on the screen. I'm just going to sort of rapid fire them. Nile to blood, frogs, dust to gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn son. Now, there's all sorts of cool um, pictures that these uh, 10 uh, sort of categorize and class as. It's basically three groups of three uh, and then one final one. You can even lump them together. The uh, numbers one, four, and six all begin in the morning. Uh, two, five, no, two, whatever. You, they all lump together in three nice little categories um, that, that are designed in a literary way to show what God's doing. It doesn't matter for our message, but it is really interesting, just the, the literature of the story. Now, these are not random acts of terror. We, we read about the plagues, and sometimes, like, it causes us to scratch our head. Like, you're telling me that God, like, did these crazy, intense, like almost horrific acts to a people, um, uh, like an innocent group of people. But these, these plagues, they're, they're actually better translated as miraculous signs. And these miraculous signs target the actions of Pharaoh, the gods of Egypt, and reveal the strength of God. Every single one of these targets either the actions of Pharaoh, the gods of Egypt, and reveal the strength of God. Let me give you only a couple of examples. Number one, the first one, Nile to blood. Why Nile to blood? One of the things that proved Pharaoh to be a tyrant and a villain is the start of the book when he commands that all the Israelite baby boys are to be drowned in the Nile in front of their parents. This is how the story opens up. So you got massive infant genocide, Pharaoh commanding that children, babies, newborns are thrown into the Nile River in front of their parents to die. The most wicked and horrific act probably in human history. Mass infant murder, trauma on the families, and inserting dominance over the people. So what does God do? Well, he turns the Nile to blood to say to Pharaoh, I know what you did. In other words, the, 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 maybe not the physical blood that was shed because they drowned, um, but the, the death in the Nile, God is saying, as Yahweh, the name that he claims, I don't know who that is, God is saying to Pharaoh, I know who you are, and I know what you did. 
And these plagues get progressively worse and attack the gods of Egypt. The Nile was worshipped as a god, and yet Yahweh has control over the Nile. And there's indication that some of Egypt gods had the heads of frogs and livestock and things like that. And so the actions of God represent the gods of Egypt, and yet Yahweh has control over them. And then secondly, the tenth plague, after ten attempts to convince Pharaoh God sends death on the firstborn sons, is a direct response to what Pharaoh had done to Israel. But in this story, when, he, when God sends uh, uh, the angel into, uh, to, to put to death all the firstborn sons, he protects the people of Israel through the institution of the Passover, which is ultimately a picture of Christ. But all throughout the plagues, we're told that Pharaoh's heart only gets increasingly hardened, oppressing the people more and not listening to the voice of God. So every plague, God gives uh, uh, Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, to let the people go, and to turn to him. And every time we're told that his heart only gets harder, that he disrespects God more and more, he afflicts more oppression and punishment upon uh, the people of Israel, and the story only gets worse. So the convincing. Now, finally, it all comes to the head with that tenth plague. Right, the death of the sons. And at that point, Pharaoh has, has given up and he says, okay, you, you can, the people, you can leave. Go worship your God. Go do your thing. And just like God predicts, the people of Egypt are giving them gold and silver and food and things like that, basically saying, please just leave. All right, part two, this will speed up, is the exit. Finally, Egypt uh, releases the Israelites. In fact, the Egyptians are convinced about who Yahweh is, so much so that many Egyptians begin to follow God and leave with their families. So, so we're, we're actually told when that Passover is instituted, when, when the story is that they, they would have a lamb, they would eat that lamb, they would take the blood of the lamb and, and paint it on their door, doorpost as a sign of protection that this house is covered by the blood, that not only did that work for the Israelites... But any Egyptian family that did the same thing was covered. And then when the exodus happened, when people left Egypt, all of the Israelites people left. And any Egyptians that wanted to forget serving Pharaoh and start serving Yahweh were welcome to come as a part of them. So they leave. And this will be a part of the reputation as they head into the promised land. But as they begin to leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he sends his army after the people. And this is the point in the story when it seems like it's over for the Israelites. Right? This is the point where they get to the Red Sea. There they are, millions of people stuck. The Red Sea's in front of them. And then they turn around and I imagine like, you know, that scene, there's like the hill. And all of a sudden, all the chariots begin to line the hill. And there the Egyptian armies, the most powerful army in the world, is about to come and take back their Slaves. Seems to be no way back or forward. And yet, God does one final miracle. He causes the Red Sea to part, making it dry land for millions of Israelites to walk across. He then closes the water on the Egyptian army as the final act of his power. And this same uh, idea is echoed in the resurrection. The story is over, the Messiah is dead. 
Darkness has covered the whole land. The, 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 who we thought was going to be the redeemer is now buried in the ground. And then Jesus' body breathes again. And just when it seems like it's over, just when it seems like it's lost, God has the final say. This is who God is. He shows up exactly at the right time and does what only he can do. And this story, as the Israelites are leaving, they're like, okay, well, we're done. It's over now. And then God does something miraculous. And in the same way, and I believe the same is true in our own life, right? God shows up always right on time. He's never late. He's not usually early. <laughs> He's always right on time. God does what only he can do. Okay, finally, part three, and we'll close, is the heart. The heart. So we've got the convincing. Moses is convinced. Pharaoh, relatively convinced. Then we have the exit. They're, they leave. Uh, God sends them out, and they're on their way. The heart. There's two questions that seem to come up when studying this story, and both deal with the heart. The heart of Pharaoh and the heart of God. These are two big questions that are asked when we study the story of the Exodus. Um, we read two things in this story about Pharaoh's heart. We're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards the people of Israel, but we're also told that God hardened his heart towards the people of Israel. In fact, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will let the people go. Quote, God, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, I'm going to make him stubborn. That's the idea of a hardened heart. I'm going to make him unwilling to repent. I'm going to make him stuck in his ways. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will inevitably let the people go. Now, it sounds like Pharaoh is a puppet that plays into God's plan without any say in the matter. It sounds like Pharaoh's just out there minding his own business, and then God comes in and strikes him with all of these terrors, ultimately, and hardening his heart along the way, making him an innocent bystander in the whole story, and God doing what he wants to do, and Pharaoh has no say in the matter. The reality is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. He was evil. He was an evil tyrant with incredible power, and God hands him over to his own hardened heart. Okay? Um, it isn't after until the seventh plague do we read that God gets involved. Okay, so God gives seven plagues or seven uh, miraculous signs, and it isn't until the seventh one that God begins to get involved, implying that after the seventh one, it, it was sort of past the point of return. Seven has a lot of uh, uh, importance in the biblical story. In the Hebrew thinking, the number seven represents completion. It means it's over, right? Like think of the creation story. On the seventh day, God rested. It's completion. It's done. It's over. It's not until after the seventh plague, after over and over and over again, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart or that Pharaoh's heart was hard. After the seventh one, God gets involved and hardens Pharaoh's heart to the point of, in a sense, speeding it up. <laughs> All right, we're going to let the people go. Pharaoh, you are going to uh, uh, get what you want. This also reveals things about the heart of God. Now, we tend to read this story and look at it from our point of view. Wealthy, comfortable, 
educated people compared to most of the world in human history. Obviously, there's different levels of wealth in the room. But when we're talking about uh, the rest of the world and human history, we are all very, 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 very wealthy. And then we sit in our comfortable chairs in our AC, right, scrolling on our iPhone to read the Bible, and we say, why would God do such mean things? Like, why would, why, wait a second, I thought God was just love. Why is God killing innocent children? Why is God hardening people's hearts? Why is God wiping out livestock? Wait a second, that doesn't seem very nice. But imagine you read this story as a slave on a plantation or a child soldier in Uganda or a trafficked woman in a hostel. Imagine you're in a scene like that and then you see a God that acts on behalf of the oppressed, sets the captives free and moves towards that suffering. Imagine you read this story and you're not in the good old U.S. of A., or you are in the U.S. of A. against your will or doing something that you don't want to be doing. And you read a story about a God who moves on behalf of the oppressed. A God that sets people free and delivers those. All of a sudden it has a different perspective, right? Because we don't identify with the, 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 the captors. <laughs> we identify with the captive. And we want a God that moves towards we want a God that, that actually acts on behalf of those that are suffering. And we see the heart of God as a heart of, uh, with a heart of justice. But then on the other hand, God gives the Egyptians over 10 chances to repent. In fact, it's more like 12 chances to repent. Because the very first sign is when Moses walks in and throws a stick on the ground and it turns into a snake. And then they're like, whoa. And then his like sorcerers or like his little priests do the same thing and turn sticks to snakes. It's so weird in the story. This is a side point. But every time God does one of these plagues, at least through the first, I think it's the first three. I can't remember. I should have written this down. But the, the Pharaoh's little minions do the same thing. So they like make more frogs. You're like, Nice. Why not make the frogs go away? It's like, aha, more frogs. Yes, frogs. We can do that. <laughs> like, nice, guys. It's also, there's another side story. Uh, Moses goes to, during the frog situation, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he's like, okay, please. He's like, or Mo, Pharaoh goes to Moses, like, please, let's get rid of the frogs. And Moses is like, all right, when do you want the frogs gone? If it were me, I'd be like, right now, please. He's like, tomorrow sounds good. All right, tomorrow you'll, the frogs will be gone. You can, you can hang out with the frogs one more night. Um, but over, the reason I tell you that is, is 12 times, because the 12th one would have been when God uh, uh, parted the Red Sea. So 12 times, they could have showed up. Listen to this. The, the Egyptian army could have showed up seeing the sea parted, seeing the Israelites walking across on dry land and just be like, do you know what? I think Yahweh's got this one. Let's go back to Egypt. And yet they pursue over and over again, ignoring the mercy of God and doing their own thing. Why does God identify with this story more than any other story in the Bible? Because he is a God of justice and mercy perfectly balanced. He is full of grace and truth. He is close to those that suffer and he brings people into a place of blessing. That's who God is.
And when we look at this story, we get uh, deep insight into the heart of God. So what does this all mean for us? And we'll close. Number one, God wants to use your life. God wants to use your life. How does he do it? Well, what do you have in your hand? What are the opportunities? What's the, the space? What are the experiences that God has graced you with to be a blessing to the people around you and to bring glory to him? God wants to use your life. Number two, the story teaches us that God is close to those that are suffering and wants to lead us into blessing. And then third, the story teaches us that God hears the cry of injustice and uses people to bring his kingdom of love and good into the world. How does God, how does God bring his goodness into the world? Primarily, it's through people accepting Jesus and then bringing his good and his love into the world.